everyone, and welcome to the Voris at Work podcast. I'm Jackie Ford. I'm a partner in the Labor and Employment Practice Group at Voris and your host today for the podcast. Today, our topic on the Voris at Work podcast is gender identity and expression in the workplace. We, as a practice group, have been getting lots of questions from our clients about various workplace issues that arise in connection with transgender individuals and other aspects of gender expression as it plays out at work. Sometimes the questions are very general about the state of the law in this area, but often they are very specific inquiries about discrimination on the basis of gender expression or, more commonly, really specific questions, real-world questions about how to accommodate various aspects of gender expression. So to help us talk about those more specific aspects, I've brought in an expert on the topic to join us on the podcast today. And I'm really excited to have her with us. Our guest today is Elena Yoakum. Elena is also a lawyer, but more importantly, she is the Executive Director of Equality Ohio. Elena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jackie. It's an honor to be here. Can you um, tell us about uh, who you are and what Equality Ohio is? Sure. Um, I am honored to be the Executive Director of Equality Ohio, which is Ohio's statewide LGBTQ education and advocacy organization. Um, we are coming into our 15th year of existence. Uh, it's uh, amazing that we have been around this long fighting for LGBTQ equality on so many different fronts. Um, definitely have some victories, but we have a long way to go. Well, and one of the things I'm really excited about that you all are doing and have been doing for many years now is providing that education to employers, employees, and the public at large around some of these you know, practical, everyday aspects of gender equality and accommodation in the workplace. Um, and I know that you've done consulting for businesses about ways to provide an inclusive workplace, um, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later in the podcast. So as I've said, what we're going to talk about today is some of the most common legal issues and questions that employers face in regard to gender nonconforming employees. And again, that practical real world advice for managing those challenges. Um, we'll get into the details shortly, but just to sort of tee it up, I think probably one of the most common questions we get relates to bathroom issues. Uh, which bathrooms, for example, should transgender employees use? What about um, things like pronouns? If someone who previously was referred to by uh, female pronouns now has requested to be referred to with male pronouns, what is the best practice and what is some of the uh, legal structure around some of those questions. So that just gives you an example of a couple of things that Elena and I will be talking about today. So let me just get started. And Elena, you and I were, were talking before the podcast actually about terminology and terms like gender identity and transgender. Could you just uh, maybe for our, our audience who's listening kind of define those two terms so that as you and I are talking today, people understand the terms that we're using and we all you know, are using them in the same way. So gender identity, can you just sort of speak to what we mean when we use that term? 
Absolutely. So gender identity is a person's innermost sense of self as relates to their gender. And in fact, every single one of us, every person listening to this podcast has a gender identity. And what it means is when you close your eyes and you look inward and think, what is my gender and how do I express that to the world? Um, that helps the person understand their gender identity. For most people, for many people, that gender identity aligns with the sex that they were assigned at birth. However, for some uh, individuals, many in our population, um, when a person closes their eyes, that innermost sense of gender does not align with the sex that they were assigned at birth. So where there is alignment, so if a woman closes her eyes and was also assigned the sex of female at birth, that person is cisgender. However, if a person closes their eyes who was assigned, for example, female at birth, but they know themselves truly to be masculine and uh, they live their life as the man they've always known themselves to be, that person is transgender. So gender identity is a concept that we all share. Every one of us has a gender identity. It's just different for some individuals. Um, transgender individuals is the umbrella term used for when that is not in alignment with the sex that they were assigned at birth. That is incredibly helpful and such a great summary and, and such a helpful way to think about uh, what gender identity is. And to your point, everyone has a gender identity. In, in terms of numbers, do you have any sense, Elena, of how, you know, what portion of the workforce or how many individuals around the country are transgender or otherwise gender nonconforming? Yeah, this is a question that we get a lot, and this is an imperfect science to be sure. Um, but the data that we have traditionally relied on is from the Williams Institute, and they estimate that about 0.6 of the U.S. Uh, pop, 0.6% of the U.S. population identifies as transgender, which works out to about 1.4 million people across the country. Um, and that data is a little bit older; it's from around 2016. My guess is, if they are updating the data, we are going to see far more people identifying as transgender. Um, due to, frankly, the ability for more people to come out. It's not that there are suddenly are more transgender people. It's that people feel safer due to changes in laws and policy to express their full selves. So this is an issue that's going to grow, and it's a set of, of legal and practical issues that is, is going to be with us and only um, continue to be even more so given those large numbers. Um, that's right. So let's talk a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll do a quick overview of of the state of the law in this area, which is anything but clear and anything but consistent. Um, it is tremendously uh, inconsistent across different jurisdictions across the United States. I think um, I know from working with various you know, human resources people that we work with every day, there's often an assumption in that community, in the human resources community, that state and federal laws prohibit discrimination on the base of basis of sex or gender, so therefore they also prohibit discrimination or harassment against um, transgender individuals. But that's not necessarily true. In the Sixth Circuit, which is the federal circuit that includes Ohio, for example, the case law on this is, is interesting and is, it is currently uh, uh, going to be decided by the United States Supreme Court. But there's a case uh, that was actually brought by the EEOC, EEOC versus the um, 
R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Home. The case arose in Michigan and then made its way up through the Sixth Circuit and is now uh, at the high court. Um, and in this case, there was a transgender woman who had worked as a funeral director in Michigan. She had presented as a male from the beginning of her employment, but then in 2013, she informed her supervisor that um, she was transitioning and would begin expressing her identity uh, consistently as a woman. The company then terminated her employment and the supervisor testified that it was specifically because um, Stevens was no longer going to represent herself uh, as a man and instead would be representing herself as a woman. So uh, there's no question in this case that that was the motivating factor behind the employment decision. The question before the court was, does that violate any law? The district court, the trial court, held that yes, the funeral home had discriminated, but that the funeral home had a valid defense to that discrimination under what's called RIFRA, which is a, uh, a law that allows for, uh, it's the religi religious freedom statute, and that based on the religious motivation of the decision maker and the company, um, the court held that that was a defense to uh, what it did not deny was discriminatory conduct. But the Sixth Circuit, the uh, which is the Court of Appeals, took a different view, agreed with the trial court that um, Stevens had been discriminated against, but then went on to say that there is no uh, defense under RIFRA that would override the statutory provision in Title VII that prohibits discrimination on this basis. So, in other words, they said that, you know, yes, you may have a religious objection, but the burden on your religious exercise has to be substantial under RIFRA in order for you to use that as a defense against discrimination and simply having a transgender individual working for you or representing you in, in the funeral home is not a substantial burden. And so on that basis, the court ruled in favor of the employee. And that, that issue is now, uh, again, before the Supreme Court. There has been, you know, a variety. There's been a variety of different decisions from different courts around the country um, as to the federal law, but that is where we are currently in the Sixth Circuit. Um, and just that case, the fact that there are these religious defenses and other aspects to it tells you that this is uh, a complex uh, set, of, set of issues that get brought before the court when they're dealing with matters of transgender individuals. One of the other things to think about from a legal perspective, and we're going to talk about bathrooms shortly, but um, there is actually guidance from OSHA, the Safety Administration, uh, about the safety aspects of making sure that restroom access is provided for transgender employees, you know, in a safe and appropriate way. And as I said, we'll get to that. There are also, you know, states and localities that have statutes and ordinance on this, ordinances on this basis. Um, Columbus, for example, has an ordinance on this subject, uh, but the state of Ohio is not, uh, does not have a statute specifically explicitly uh, addressing it. So all of that is to say that, you know, those of you listening to our podcast today, many of you have multi-state or multi-jurisdiction operations. The state of the law here is not necessarily singular, and it is certainly far from clear. So when we're advising clients on an issue like this where the law is still evolving, we always want to say, well, what would be the ways to stay ahead of that? If I wanted to make sure that I was providing uh, an inclusive workplace consistent with my general policies, but also thinking, you know, I want to be 
um, you know, thinking of the of the best practices that I could be implementing along these lines, what would that be? So again, Elena, that's where I think we turn to you to say, what are some of the most um, common issues that you find that when you guys are doing training and consulting for employers that you're able to provide advice on? And I'll tee up the first one and then we'll go from there. The first one, you know, is the one that I, I know we here at Vories get asked about a lot, and that is in regard to bathrooms. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of the most common issues that you guys are asked to advise on in regard to bathroom use for transgender individuals and what some of your helpful uh, tips and practices are for that? Yes, this is definitely an area um, that we are asked about a lot. I actually just gave a presentation earlier this week to uh, about 150 HR professionals, and this is where everybody's interest peaked in the conversation because people are getting these questions on the floor of their workspaces. Um, and the advice is actually pretty simple. I think you gave a great overview of the fact that the state of the law is in flux. Um, in the Sixth Circuit right now, through that Harris Stevens uh, Harris funeral home case, um, it did hold ultimately that in the Sixth Circuit, sex as a protected class does include transgender individuals. And in fact, the state of the law in our circuit has been upholding that interpretation for quite some time. And again, that's not recognized in every jurisdiction. That has um, been around for only the EEOC's involvement, so that isn't going to apply to businesses with fewer than 15 employees, all sorts of limitations on that. But um, the way that we encourage businesses to, to look at this issue is to say, generally assume that there are protections in place legally for LGBTQ people because we believe that is where the law is going. And it's certainly where we are advocating for the law to be going to protect your LGBTQ employees. Um, so back to the specific question around restroom use, what does that mean for transgender individuals? It means that people know the bathroom that they should be using based on their gender identity. And businesses should allow people to use the restroom space based on their own asserted gender identity. So that means transgender women, individuals living their lives out as the women they've always known themselves to be, should use the women's restroom. Transgender men, individuals who live their lives out knowing themselves to be the men they've always been, should also use male restrooms. Um, but what does that mean for other individuals or single stall restrooms? First, does a business have to create a gender neutral or a single stall restroom space? No, generally the law has, has not in any way required the creation of a single stall restroom or a gender neutral space um, if that isn't exist already. How we, however, we know that many of our businesses do have those places um, available within the workforce. Should a business ever require a transgender individual to use that gender neutral space? The answer is a clear no. You cannot tell transgender individuals what restroom they should use, that they have to use the single stall restroom. However, that stall should really be made available for anybody for any reason of why they might want to have additional privacy um, and have a single stall restroom available. Um, as long as that is made equally available to everybody, uh, a business is going to be in, in best practice territory. So to re recap that, transgender individuals uh, should use the restroom matching their gender identity, and oftentimes that will be uh, the restroom that they most feel safe in. And as an employer, you need to trust your, your employee that they know their gender identity um, and that they are in that space to do what everybody else is, which is use the restroom, wash their hands, and then leave and go back to the job. Um, so Elena that's the best practice advice. 
Yeah, and that makes perfect sense to me. The follow-up question that we often get is, what do I then do with my employees who are using that restroom who think of that as a gender-specific private space and are uncomfortable in having someone uh, who is anatomically not of their gender, particularly if they fear that there's any risk of exposure or anything along that line. Can you speak to the kind of um, education or other process that you use to address those issues uh, that, you know, understandably arise from other individuals using that restroom? Sure. I think everybody has an expectation of privacy in a restroom space, and that doesn't change when a transgender individual is in a restroom space. We all want privacy, and we all want to go about our business and get back to our jobs after using the restroom. Um, so I think that's really important to emphasize with any employees who may have concerns about using a restroom space with another employee that they, they may know is transgender. Additionally, I am guessing that many of us are using restroom spaces with transgender individuals right now, and we don't know it, because that is actually not uh, relevant to a person's accessing a restroom space. Something that can be done in terms of, of helping individuals who may be learning more about their transgender colleagues is if a colleague has concerns or reservations, really sitting down and talking with them about what those concerns are. You know, why does it matter what anatomy anyone has in that restroom space? Um, we're just going about our business and using the facilities and then moving on about our day. But if a person still has concerns, there are a couple options for that person, the person who has the concerns, to be clear, not the transgender individual. They can use another facility, uh, perhaps a single stall restroom themselves, or if those facilities aren't available, they can always wait to see if the restroom space is clear and then use that when no other individuals are using it at that time. Um, certainly that's something I'm sure people do now if they want extra privacy, they wait for the restroom space that's shared by many to just not have anybody in it. And that's a way for a person who has personal concerns to alleviate those without then also uh, requiring a transgender individual to not use that restroom space. So I think, Elena, one of the things that makes your advice so valuable is that it is very real world, very practical, and I think you've made an excellent point that any of these solutions to questions or conflicts that arise in this subject area really boils down to, you know, the facts of the particular situation, education and awareness of the workforce, and then working out solutions that actually make sense for your business. So. For example, if you're a manufacturing facility and you generally give a whole shift full of people bathroom breaks at the same time, then some of the solutions around waiting, for example, for use of the bathroom may or may not be as practical as they would be in other settings. But the point is to look at your particular structures and you know look for ways to talk it through and come to that real-world solution to, to the challenge so that everybody in the workforce can get to a, a comfort level. The second issue that we hear about, and I don't know if this is something that you encounter, Elena, but it's one of the questions that we get, has to do with pronouns and honorifics. So someone who perhaps was previously known by female pronouns is now asked to be addressed by a different name and perhaps with male pronouns. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about, you know, what to do if you run into obstacles with that or, again, you know, sort of how you approach that in the workplace. 
Absolutely. I think pronouns are very important to a person's identity. Um, they are a, an important part of a person who is transgender, their social transition in more fully expressing the gender they've always known themselves to have more publicly to the world. And pronouns are part of that. And so a transition may include, as you've suggested, changing pronouns from she to he, or perhaps using they pronouns, they, them, for a person who identifies as non-binary. Um, and these are pronouns. These these are something that colleagues should respect, just as they would respect a name change for any other reason um, for an individual. And I think the real world uh, question that sometimes arises is, oh gosh, what happens if I mess up? Um, because you may have known this colleague by one set of pronouns and name for a very long time. And certainly there is a period of transition and mistakes will occur. Um, and that is to be expected. And uh, oftentimes the best thing to do in that situation as a colleague, if you use the wrong pronoun or you use uh, the wrong name, to just apologize and move on, truly. Uh, there doesn't also need to be any, any guilt or, or belaboring of the point of a mistake having been made. It was a mistake and we can move on. Um, I think that where the challenge is, is if you have any coworkers who might be truly resistant to calling a person by their new name or their new pronouns, um, and that's, that's disrespectful to the individual going through the transition and really does need to be addressed that that person should be called by their name and the pronouns that they have chosen, just as one would expect a colleague to call any other person uh, who has changed their name by their new name for any other reason. Again, a great way to um, frame that issue, um, to sort of step back from it and say, if the name uh, had changed for any other reason, marriage, divorce, whatever it might be, you know, we would be making a transition to that new name fairly seamlessly. That should be hopefully the challenge in this uh, kind of scenario as well. Those were the two that I really wanted us to talk about today because they are the ones that we here at Voris have been getting the most questions uh, about from clients that we work with. There are obviously others. We hear about everything from dress codes. You know, what if you have a gender-specific dress code in your workplace for some reason? Um, what are the rules around that with um, transgender or gender-fluid individuals? Um, harassment, what if the resistance to a transgender person in the workplace rises to the level of harassing behavior and how you deal with that. Quite a number of other legal and practical issues that arise. And I do want folks to know that obviously we here at Voris can help you on thinking about and working through those issues, but Equality Ohio has, you know, consulting and training and other services available working with employers um, to address those issues as well. And so we will have, when we, we post our podcast episode, we'll have a link to Equality Ohio if you would like to learn more about some of the hands-on help um, that they can provide as well. Elena, any, any final thoughts before we wrap up today? You know, I am so glad that we're having this conversation because the more that we have it, the more empowered individuals will feel um, in their workplaces to be supporting their transgender colleagues um, and employees and, and doing so in a respectful and thoughtful way. Um, just one last little piece of advice perhaps for, for uh, employers is every situation may be different. Um, each individual um, who comes to you to say, I am transitioning, um, be actually honored at 
at that because they are inviting you in. They feel safe enough in that workplace to be able to bring their full authentic self to work and to stay at that job. And that is really a gift to you as an employer um, for being welcoming and inclusive enough for them to, to do that, um, especially in a state and age where we do have this flux in the law and it's not very clear how safe an individual is doing that. Um, and then tailor it to that individual's needs in the workplace that you have and listen to the good advice you're going to get from Voris. Thanks so much for having me here today. And Elena, thank you so much for being with us. We hope this um, podcast has been helpful to you today. And again, you can follow up with us at Voris or with Equality Ohio with any follow-up questions. And with that, let's get back to work. <laughs>